Chapter 14 of The Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 14. The men in the hut were asleep. It was Saturday night, and in view of the coming Sunday, the twelve men were at last sleeping soundly, knowing that they would not have to get up again in an hour or two. There were six bunks in the one room, in threes, one above the other, and two men in each. They lay with their heads thrown back so as to breathe freely in long, deep breaths, and the various nasal sounds from the twelve men were like the breaking of waves upon rocks. Here a coverlet was raised by a knee, there a foot appeared over the edge of the bunk. They snored and they muttered in their dreams, but they slept. Thoroughly worn out, the perspiring, sea-hardened men drifted further and further off into unconsciousness. Their sleep was as soft as wool, and they sank deeper and deeper into it, and no one was coming to wake them, for they were not obliged to get up. They slept on and on. Just at first one or two of them were perhaps too tired, and the thoughts and images that passed through their minds too persistent to allow them to lie still. They were rowing so that their fingers were chafed to the bone. They saw the cod rise out of the sea and darken the sky like a multitude of birds. Well, cod could fly, and look, they were made of silver, no, of gold. It was riches. So come, good people, and tell us what we owe you, for this time we can manage to pay. And all the world's splendor floated before their eyes, and they bought it all and the money, money in hand, everything was sent home to the little cottages on the beach. If there is anything else you want, children, just say so, for the fishing is better than any one can remember. They buy farms with a garden and avenues of trees and horses and carriages, just as at Lindegord. Now there would be an end to that everlasting complaint of poverty and having no money in one's pocket. Little by little the visions faded, and the men were sufficiently rested to feel their weariness, and lost themselves in a pleasant haze, a quiet landscape, a paradise of rest. The dawn crept into the hut, and they slept. It grew light, and they still slept. Midday came, and no one woke, only turned over and slept on. The doctor was an energetic man, and had made up his mind that he would teach the fishermen cleanliness, and today he was going round among the huts to speak a few words of wisdom to the men. He ran into a temperance worker at the door of the Stadslander's hut, and both men stopped. "'Were you going in here, sir?' asked the temperance man. "'That was my intention. And you?' "'Yes, I had thought of doing so.' Well, we can go in together. There may be something for both of us to do. The doctor went in first, and both remained standing on the threshold, as though arrested by a vision. The floor was one confusion of wet sea-boots and leather clothing. The table was covered with half-empty cups, spilled coffee and fragments of food. Round the stone-cold stove hung damp oilskins and woolen vests, and the odor of fish-oil, leather, damp wool, and exhalations from human bodies made the two gentlemen gasp for breath. They turned and stole softly out, with a peculiar feeling of respect for the sleep they witnessed, and carefully closed the door. 
Twilight was falling over the station, and the men slept on. The tiny windows grew grey and then black, and they still slept. At last Peter Shusanza sat up and rubbed his eyes, and then took a match and struck it on the wall. It was seven o'clock by his watch. It was too early to get up on a Sunday morning, so he drew the coverlet over him and went to sleep again. Next, Alesos heard sounds of talking outside and, getting up, went out. When he returned, he cried, "'Get up, men! We've slept all day, and it's Sunday evening. Do you hear? Wake up! I'll make the coffee!' He lighted the lamp, made a little clearance in the hut, and put on the kettle. The others went to sleep again, but Alesos was in a good temper and was splendid now that things were going well. It did not take him long to think out a little surprise. He would take a little of his soft flatbread, spread butter and treacle on it, cut it neatly up into pieces and put it on a plate, and then serve the company with early morning coffee in bed, at eight o'clock in the evening. He washed himself, combed his hair and beard, and made himself spruce, and then hunted up a blue check shirt that would do well as the housemaid's apron, and tied it around him. And when everything was ready and coffee steaming in twelve cups, he began singing a Christmas hymn to wake them up, for there could be no mistake about its being Christmas when they were served with such fare in bed. When at last they sat up and were quite awake, a neighbor came in and told them that there had been no one at church except the priest and the sacristan. The whole station had been asleep. This made them at last understand that it was not morning but evening, and they looked at one another and found out that they were ravenously hungry. They had not tasted hot food for a whole week and had gone hungry for several days, so they needed something more than coffee and flatbread now. Someone said, Melia, and instantly there was a chorus of Melia. That was a dish to set before a king, and they had not had it yet this year, so of course it must be Melia. Henry, said Peter Shusanza, I know you're a good hand at that, so you must set to work. While Henry Robin was busy over the hearth in the kitchen, Lars had to take out pen and ink and write Lofoten letters for the men. Most of the men had arrived at the age when they no longer ventured to use a pen, for the many years of Lofoten fishing had made their hands stiff and swollen. Now you must show us whether you can write they said to the scory, for now their wives and children must have a little news, and perhaps a little paper money inside too. But don't write outside the envelope that there is money inside, for then there will be such chatter and gossip about it all over the neighborhood. Lars sat under the yellow light of the lamp, trying to keep his eyes open while he scrawled what the men wanted to say. His hands were terribly sore and stiff but Cornelis Gumon had taught him to rub them well with tar and tallow. "'What do you want to say, Eleseus? "'Ah, you must say that we're working as hard as we can.' Bending closer, he added in a low voice, though everyone in the hut could not help knowing it, "'And you can say that we can't complain about the fishing, but it'll be just as well if she keeps that to herself.' They came one after another with a crumbled envelope in one big hand and a sheet of blue-lined paper in the other, bought at the shop for two euro one day when they had been kept on shore. 
See here, you must scribble a few words for me, too. And every one of them wanted to say that they could not complain with regard to the fishing, but they always added this in a low voice, bending down to say it. A certain shyness came over these big fishermen when they had to go to their chests to take a banknote out of the small compartment with the others looking on, and it was still worse to have to go forward into the light and say that it was what the wife was to have. It was almost like showing an engagement ring when it was meant to be secret. When he came to the table, the man would make his back as broad as possible toward the others, and push the note toward the boy, as invisibly as he could manage to do it, saying, "'Perhaps you'd better put that inside.' While this was going on, Kristaver clattered out into the kitchen in his wooden shoes, and closed the door behind him, so that he and Henry Rubin were alone. "'Ah, I shall be glad of a little help,' said Henry, who was busy with the fire and saucepans. Kristaver looked at him. "'There is something I want to talk to you about privately,' he said. "'Is there? Is it anything unpleasant?' Henry had already found time to comb his hair and beard, and in all probability had been out and snuffed up a little sea-water as well. "'You were one of my guarantors, so that I saved my boat.' "'Aye, but was that too much? A clever fellow like you must have his own boat.' Christaver insisted, however, that Henry should accept a service from him in return. "'Aye, well, if you'll train me to be as good a headman as yourself, I'll—' You must see that it's quite out of the question for you to be a half-share man. Was it? But he had no nets and no share in the boat, so he was a half-share man like the others. Wasn't that all right? Christopher told him that he could have nets from him, so that he could be a whole-share man. You must agree to it, he said. It was no small matter, for the headman was doing nothing less than doubling the profits of the other man. Henry looked first at him, and then at the pen on the fire, his lips smiling, but his eyes serious. "'You want me to take payment for a service I did you,' he said at last. "'Well, you lost your nets last year, and now you have an opportunity of getting them back again. We can make a new agreement. Now you must be good enough to say yes.' Hmm. "'But you took the risk for us all together, both for nets and boat.' and he who makes the venture takes a price. We people at Robin can't eat more than our fill, and we won't take the money that you've the right to. Thanks all the same, but come in to supper now. Christopher stared. Henry need only hold out his hand, and he could have nets and double the profits on his share, and the fellow goes and says, No. Melia! Get away from the table, men! Here is supper at last. Henry brought in several plates of broken-up flatbread, and then, taking in the saucepan full of boiled, steaming hot liver, he ladled out a liberal helping into each plate. The oil glistened as it flowed over the piles of flatbread, and over it was strewn grated goat's milk cheese, after which treacle was poured all over in long, golden-brown, sinuous lines. The next thing was to stir it all up with a spoon, and there you had a mixture that was worth tasting. The twelve men seated themselves around the table and set to work. 
It was not easy to say when they at last had a spoon in their hands. It seemed to them that they had lived upon coffee and bread as long as they could remember. But this was not simply food. It was like a wedding. The plates were emptied in an incredibly short space of time. Oh, yes, Henry Robin had more liver, and he had soon prepared new platefuls, and then the spoons went at it again. What? Were the dishes empty already? They were only just beginning to enjoy their meal. One or two let out their belts a hole or two, but all felt that there was not a wedding at the station every day. Faces, beards, fingers, shone with oil, treacle, and cheese. Lars had to go out to the snowdrift where the liver was kept fresh and bring in another saucepanful. It took some time to boil, but now they could have a smoke and a dram while they waited. There were footsteps outside, and Jakob came sailing in, swinging round his long leg as he turned to shut the door behind him. "'Good evening, men. Why, damn it all, couldn't I tell by the smell that you were having something good for supper?' "'Come in and sit down,' came from the smoker sitting round in the room. The men winked at one another, for whenever Melia was served on the station, Jakob never failed to get wind of it, and would put in an appearance there, even if he had already eaten his fill of that delicacy in his own hut. "'You must find a place at the table,' said Peter Shusansa, an invitation to which Jakob was not slow to respond. He brought news, however. "'There is another tax to be laid upon us fishermen,' he said, helping himself to a spoon which he polished on his sleeve, just as a fresh supply of Melia was brought in. "'What's it going to be now?' "'Why, every boat's got to hand over fifty fish to the hospital for medicine. That's a nasty one for the fishermen.' The other said, "Hm," and were of the same opinion. As Jakob sat there, the difference between him and the others was very apparent. His straight black hair and beard were in marked contrast to their fair hair and blue eyes. They wore homespun, woven in their own homes from the wool of their own sheep, but Jakob had no one to weave for him. He had to go to the shop for all that he clothed himself in, and was now dressed in an Iceland jersey and leather waistcoat, and the blouse outside these was blue. Whom had he to fish for? No one. He belonged to Lofoten, and was with the others on the way north and home again, and he belonged to the same neighborhood down there, but his real home was in the cabin of the sea-flower. There was only one thing that could explain his not as yet having been killed in a fight, or ruined by drink, or drowned through mad sailing, and that was that he was Jakob. And here he sat, in the best of tempers, eating melia and drinking drams, the immortal, lame Jakob, damn it all with a limp, the stormy petrel on shore. He told them that a new preacher was expected to arrive. The priest was furiously angry, but the fellow was said to be very good at explaining the word of God, and as he said the word of God, Jakob put his head on one side and looked at the lamp, and almost fancied he tasted something sweet. When the dish was empty he rose and took his departure. He had an inkling that there was another hut where Melia was to be had, and when he came out into the dark he steered his course through the snow, straight for a light that shone from a rocky knoll. His southwester and broad back certainly swung a little too much to the right, 
but this did not prevent him from singing his favorite song, Oh, dear Maria, oh, ho! The hut to which the scent now led was occupied by Andrea Secra, headman on the stormbird, and here there were both Melia and spirits to be had, but the men were sleepy and wanted to go to bed, for they would have to get up early to begin a week of toil. Once more Jakob turned out into the dark night. By this time he had put away a great many small drams and taken a good cargo of Melia on board, but he steered for the harbour light and remembered more or less where his little boat lay. Of course, as he staggered along past the little dark huts, he had to sing his song, Oh, dear Maria, oh, ho! Hello! He had tumbled into a snowdrift. But what was there to prevent his lying there for a little while quietly, and looking at the stars, and then scrambling up again? The lights on the wharves and in the huts were out, and no one saw that Jacob was white on one side and dark on the other. Ha! There was a fellow stealing along with a girl. Ha! Ha! Did he think that Jacob had never been young himself? At last he reached his boat, unfastened her, and tumbling in, got out the oars. Beneath him lay the water of the sound, dotted with stars, and above him was the sky, sparkling with still more stars. And now the wharves began to move backward, away from him. Well, well, let them go. Ships and boats on the harbour, the noise of breakers out at sea, darkness and peace on land and water. Oh, dear Maria, oh, ho! End of chapter 14